Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Pathway Church Podcast. We are a Bible-based church located in Peterborough, Canada, and together we are on a mission to reach people who are far from Christ and see them become devoted followers of Jesus. In today's episode, Pastor Nathan brings us part two of his series, Kingmakers. Jesus did not come to simply save us from our sin. He's done that and so much more. This week we will learn about our identity in Christ, who is the ultimate kingmaker, and how we ought to respond in light of this knowledge. So with that, let's turn it over to Pastor Nathan in part two of his series, Kingmakers. Hey, it's great to be with you guys today once again. It's good to be back. Um, again, as uh, Jessica just said, I, I am the, uh, I don't know if she actually said this, but I am the lead pastor here, have been for uh, nearly 11 years, and it's my honor and privilege to serve here and. uh Today, I'm kind of going to be finishing up a message that I began last week. I hope uh, that many of you were able to hear that and sort of know where we are. We'll recap quickly. But just before we do, I just wanted to say thanks to our worship team and to our, our tech crew and all those who have uh, made this morning possible. I mean, setting the space, creating the space and uh, preparing everything for our online audience is just amazing. And I love some of those songs we sang this morning. I mean, so powerful, right? This is some of those older songs like, It Is Well With My Soul. And I think in previous generations, people, I'm not saying it was, yeah, I, I will say it was harder back then. I don't know. Uh, in the 16 and 17 and 1800s, some of the things that people had to live through, um, it forced them to really dig deep in their faith, right? And to really ask what's important and to ask where their security is found and to really find God in the midst of difficult situations. And we're invited into that process as well and hearing some of those songs and just considering you know, the season we're in, it's been tough. Would you guys agree? Yeah, a little show of hands. This is going to be a little bit of an interactive message. I got up before hands. It's been tough, right? The last year and a half has been odd, tough, and hopefully through the process, it's forcing us to sort of dig deep with our faith and to reconnect with God in a, in a powerful way. So let me grab my little screen, and uh, we're going to kind of recap a few things that we said last week. So I'll throw that up there. Uh, last week, I introduced a, a message and a, a concept called the Kingmaker. And it sort of uh, came out of this text in Proverbs 12, verse 4, which we'll just kind of quickly recap, okay? Now, this, this verse at first glance will seem a little odd, but I assure you, uh, there's a point. A virtuous woman, or you could say a godly wife, a caring and loving and nurturing wife, is a crown to her husband. And when I first read that, as I said last week, I thought to myself, what is the author of this proverb saying? Is he saying that a woman is like, feather in a cap, a jewel in her husband's crown. That's actually not what he's talking about. He says, but, but she that makes ashamed, okay, an embarrassing, uh, complaining wife is as rottenness in her husband's bones. And as I stared at this and I thought about the context, I thought, what is this really about? And it dawned on me that this is actually about the power of relationship, okay? The power of relationship. And that the power of relationship is actually greater than all these other powers that we're all vying for in our lives, in our workplaces, in our homes. We want physical power, financial power, political power, and on and on the list could go. But what happens is the power relationship is actually greater than all these other kinds of powers. So think about this. In the context that the verse was written, a virtuous wife, 3,000 years ago, okay, let's be honest, a wife in an ancient Jewish community did not have the physical power, I'm guessing. She likely did not have financial power. She wasn't in control of the family budget and she didn't have political power. There weren't like female mayors and stuff in ancient Israel. Okay, so you've got, you would, you would easily say that in this case, the wife of this man has zero power, but this is not the case because she still has, even without that, has the power of relationship. Imagine what women can do today when they have all of it. Okay, but even in that situation, 
The author of the Proverbs says, here's a wife, and if she is a godly, virtuous wife, she has the power to lift up her husband, to literally crown him. When you crown somebody, you dignify them, you elevate them, they become more than they were. And, and, and a godly, virtuous wife has the ability to crown her husband, or, you know, in the other case, she could also pull him down. That's the power of relationship. Now, let me just flip the script a little bit, because this isn't just about wives and husbands, Okay. A virtuous husband is a crown to his wife. This is a little tiara. He's a crown to his wife, right? A, let me put it in, in terms that some of the younger folk can understand. A virtuous teenager, a godly, respectful, obedient, helpful teenager, cares for their siblings, and will crown his or her parents. Not a beautiful image, but you also have the power to be as rottenness in your parents' bones. You have that power through the power of relationship. That's incredible. Now, one of the reasons why the power of relationship is so powerful is because the power of relationship is, 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 is between two people. It's between you and others, and people are eternal. And so the power of relationship impacts stuff for eternity where money and all this other stuff is temporary, and it eventually fades away. So as I said last week, a virtuous woman can be a, and I wrote down this, this, this word in my journal, a kingmaker. And I didn't know that was actually a thing until I looked it up and I found out that a kingmaker is actually a thing, right? So a kingmaker is, if you can go to the next slide, a kingmaker is somebody who works behind the scenes to promote or elevate someone else. It's someone who crowns someone else. It's someone who helps someone else to get a promotion. It's someone who helps someone else to be all they can be. It's someone who uses their resources, talents, and abilities to lift someone else up. And when I read that definition, I thought, isn't that what I want to be? I want to be that. And as I shared this last week, I'm sure some of you were hearing that and going, yeah, that's what I want to be. Man, wouldn't it be cool if our church was a church full of kingmakers? That if we, we, our heart was to lift others up and help them be more than they are. Wouldn't that be incredible? Wouldn't that not be a place and a community that you would love to be part of? That would be an incredible culture. Now, unfortunately, some things like the idea of a kingmaker are easy to understand and hard to do. So I want to ask you this morning, can you, can you think of somebody... Um, in your life, have you experienced a kingmaker in your life? Can you think of somebody in your life who was a kingmaker or who is a kingmaker? Think about it. Maybe a parent, a grandparent, a mentor, a youth leader, whatever. As I thought back to my own life, there are many people I think would fit that description, but one stands out in my mind. Uh, when I graduated from Bible college, I moved to Trenton, and there I was living with my parents, and I applied for a job at a local church as a youth worker. And I was going to help with their youth ministry. It was a small Pentecostal church in Trenton. And I went for the job interview, and the pastor hired me. But then within a few weeks, he changed my title from youth worker to associate pastor. I'm like, what? And I remember going to him saying, like, no, like, you know, I'm a youth worker. I'm working with the teens. You don't have to give me the title. He's like, no, no, you are more than just a youth worker. And his words are still putting wind in my sails today. And then he asked me to preach from the main stage. You know, young man, fresh out of Bible college, thought I knew everything. Told everybody I thought I knew everything. It was bad. Uh, and, and so there I am up there preaching on the stage, all dramatic-like, you know, and he's an older gentleman. And, and you know what? Uh, he just continued to encourage me, and then I would lead worship, and, and then I would start to hear people telling the pastor who gave me the position and honored me, they would start telling him they liked my preaching better than his, my worship better than his. And he was like, me too. I like him too. And he just continued to encourage me. And I realized something about kingmakers, is that kingmakers have to be, they have to be secure in themselves. And he was. He didn't mind if I achieved more than him. In fact, he wanted that for me. He was a kingmaker. He would encourage me. 
And, and that really is what a kingmaker is all about. But you have to be secure because insecurity will kill your ability to be a kingmaker. It's hard to encourage somebody else when you're desperately longing for encouragement yourself. It's hard to tell somebody they're great when you don't think you are and you just long to be great. So insecurity will just kill this whole idea of being a kingmaker. It is uh, also a competition is another thing that will just kill our ability to be a kingmaker, right? It's, it's hard to help somebody win a race that you're also running, right? You're running the race, somebody falls down, it's like, well, I better help them and pick them up. No, I can't, I gotta keep running. So you, they're your competition. When I, was in, when I was in Bible college, I, one day I looked across class and I saw this young lady and I thought, that is a woman worth pursuing. And so it took me a little while, but I eventually worked up the nerve to approach her and after class, I, I kind of like, I was going, I'm looking at her and I'm going right for her. She's turned and started going the other way. She must not have seen me coming. Um, but I eventually cornered her and I said, hey, I said, uh, we're in some classes together and I just, um, you know, hey, I think you're a great person. Seem to love to get to know you better. Hey, would you ever consider maybe after class someday just going over to Tim Hortons, grab a hot chocolate or coffee, talk immediately, like no hesitation, no thought, no, hmm, ha, just No okay, I said, do you mind if I ask why you're saying no? Oh, that's easy, you're immature. For those that know me, um, I'm not one to give up quickly, so I, uh, I said to her, I said, well, if I were less immature, um, could we work some out then? <laughs> no, and that was it, right? Like, it was, uh, it was bad, it went up in flames. And so that was the end of that. Uh, her name was Jessica, by the way, for those who haven't heard this story before, which she's my wife now. Uh, worked out for me. About six months later, uh, through much trickery, we became friends. And then about a year later, we were becoming really good friends, and we were hanging out regularly. Um, we were in our second year of school. And I remember um, I was just starting to get up the nerve to be like, she might actually go on a date with me if I ask her now. Like, I'm, I'm really chewing on it, because, you know, the first time didn't go so well, so I'm thinking about thinking about it. And then I get a call from a buddy of mine, and he says, hey, Nate, can I, can I come and, and, and talk to you about something? I'm like, yeah, no problem. So my buddy shows up, and we're sitting in his car, and he's like, hey, there's this girl at school. She's amazing. And I'm thinking about asking her out. And I'm like, awesome, dude. I'm like, I'm here for you. I'm here. I'm like, who is it? And he's like, it's Jessica. And everything inside me, I mean, at that point, I wanted to be a good friend. I wanted to be a kingmaker. I'm going to be like, yeah, man, let me help set that up for you. But inside, I'm thinking, no, she wants someone taller. I'm, I'm sure of it. She wants someone with a bigger nose, a little more, you know, shall we say French, you know? Um, this is what I'm thinking, but I, I probably told him to pray about her something, you know, spiritual. But it's hard. It's hard to be a kingmaker when you're in direct competition with those that you're trying to serve. Last week we looked at the words of Jesus. He said to become the least and servant to all. But how do you do that when you're longing for recognition and power and all of these things in your heart? It's hard to crown someone else king when you long to wear the crown. My precious, you know, or something. Uh, <laughs> Not quite sinister enough, but you, you understand what I'm saying. Like, it's hard to do that. And so, so today what I wanted to, to spend a bit of time talking about together is the idea of identity, okay? And identity could simply be dis- defined as who, as who you are, right? Like that's n- not who you say you are, not who people think you are, but who you really are. This is a massive subject. Honestly, this week I got so lost in the weeds thinking about this subject. My wife can tell you, I just like talking for days and days and days because there's so much to this, right? So we could, we could spend hours and hours talking about the psychological implications 
And then you could talk about the sociological implications like family, friends, culture, how all that influences our identity. But today I want to focus primarily on the theological implications. So not who you think you are looking at yourself, not who culture and family and parents say you are, but who God who created you says you are. And so we're going to kind of try to focus on that a little bit today. But identity is, is who you are And what's interesting is as I looked up this word, there's the current use, okay, the way that we use the word now, which is this, what makes you different then? So if I asked you how to define, how how do you, what somebody's identity is, you say, well, it's the things, it's their personality, it's their looks, it's their fingerprint, it's their face ID, it's the stuff that, you know, we're all snowflakes, right? You know this, none of us are the same, we're all have unique aspects, so it's like, it's the things that make us different is what many people would say in our culture today. What's really cool is when you study the, uh, the actual history of the word, the word identity emerged in the 1600s. It's fascinating, I know. And it's, and it's derived from a Latin word, iden, I-D-E-N. And do you know what the word iden means? Anybody know Latin? Nobody's going to yell at it. Okay. The word iden means same. So identity literally means what makes you the same. And you go, hang on a second. That's the exact opposite to the way we're using the word today, okay? So the original use is what makes, you know, so the original use is, yeah, what makes you the same as? So let me give you an example. For example, um, if we were to go out, if we were to leave this auditorium, those online, you could somehow come outside with us, and we would go into the parking lot, and I would say to you guys, I would like you guys to identify for me a car. How would you identify a car? Well, there are certain characteristics that all cars share. All cars have four tires. That'd be one of the first characters. So if you're looking at a car and it only has two tires, it's a motorcycle. If it has three tires, anybody? A tricycle, yeah. <laughs> All right. If it has four legs, somebody rode a horse to church. You know, like it's, a car has four tires, right? And then it, it doesn't have a big bed in the back because that would be a truck, right? So there are, there are attributes about a car that identify it as a car. And so... You have to, when you begin with identity, you have to begin with what makes things the same, and then once you identify, hey, these are all cars and those are not, then you look at these cars and you say, well, this one's a a Toyota and this one's a Tesla. This one's a V8, this one's electric. This one's, you know, you can begin to identify the differences after the foundation is on its sameness. Does any of this make sense? Here's, Here's how I think this works for us. When it comes to our identity... The most important aspect of our identity is not what makes us different, but what makes us the same. Our humanness is the foundation for community. The fact that every person in this room is made in the image and likeness of God that has intrinsic value and worth that is equal. Before you do or achieve anything, regardless of your financial status, your education status, there is something same about us all that identifies us as humans in the sight of God. We live in a culture today where everyone is arguing and fighting about everything, okay? It's crazy how much conflict over our differences of opinion politically, our differences of opinion about COVID and how things should be handled, our differences of opinion about how we should parent our kids and what we should think about all these different issues. We live in a world that's absolutely dividing us, and it is our sameness and our humanity that should be uniting us. If you can come back next week, I'm going to be starting a message, two-week message series with Kirk Goodman. We're working on it together uh, called Learning to Listen. And honestly, in our culture today, everyone has an opinion, but nobody's listening anymore. We need to learn to listen. We need to listen to one another. We need to listen to what God says. The more we listen, the less we talk, the better things get, I just assure you. So we're going we're gonna to be covering that uh, in, the, in the days ahead. But our identity, 
Man, you have a special gift and call and purpose. I often talk about that. But it is our sameness. It is our, our, we are children of God. That our identity is, that's the foundation for all our differences. You understand that? So that's the uniting foundation. So anyway, I'd love to say more about that. But let me just ask one last question, then we're going to move into some scripture, okay? Is our identity achieved or received? Huge question. Wish we had time to dig into it. Is our identity achieved or do I decide who I want to be and then go out and achieve it? Or am I given a name? Am I called to a purpose? Am I equipped with what I need? Like, which is it? Is it me or is it outside of me, inside, outside, all of that kind of thing, right? So when we're talking about identity, we're, ta- we're talking about this, and specifically today we're talking about how our identity is given to us by God. I want to turn to Matthew chapter 3. Many of you have read this text before. Uh, and this is when Jesus is baptized. Now, if you're new to church and you don't know a lot about the story of Jesus, Jesus was born, miraculous birth. Uh, we see him when he's 12 years old. And then we get this little glimpse of him at 12, and then nothing until he's 30 or 30 so. And then he begins his ministry. He gets baptized. That's the first thing he does before he preaches a sermon, before he heals the sick, before he multiplies bread, before he does anything, he gets baptized. And here's what it says. When Jesus was baptized, and let me just fill in some blanks. Baptism literally means to dip or dunk. Jesus is just dunked in the water. And when that happens, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. Listen, I have no idea whether anyone else in the crowd heard the words of the Father that we're about to see, but Jesus heard them, and that's what matters. Next verse. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest upon him. And here is what uh, the voice of the Lord said. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Now, that passage has always struck me because Jesus hasn't done anything yet. And the Father is like, This is my son, and I'm already pleased with him. So, when it came to Jesus' ministry, healing the sick, traveling the countryside, pillow for a rock, dragging around these, these uneducated disciples who were constantly goofing up, like all the stuff that Jesus did and eventually laying down his life, it was all done out of his identity, knowing that he is loved, beloved by his father. And only because he knew who he was, he could do all of that and, and live with the criticism and the hatred and the anger and all of the stuff that was coming at him from every single direction. It's incredible. He knew his father and he knew that his father loved him. Uh, a couple days ago, we had a, uh, we had a small group gathering. So uh, Jessica, my wife and I, uh, were privileged to lead a small group for this winter season that was only online. So I know some of you have done online groups and Zoom and stuff. But it, through our online group, we were able to really connect. Um, it was great. Um, we got to meet in person for the first time a couple days ago, and we had an outdoor picnic by the lake. And it was so cool because um, while we were there, two people asked to be baptized. And so I got to baptize them in the lake with our small group surrounding and cheering. It was amazing. But really, what we're talking about when we get baptized, okay, when a person is emerged in the water and comes out of the water, it's, it's an identification with Jesus. It's saying Jesus' death is my death. When he died for my sins, my sins went down with him. And when he raised to newness of life, I was raised with him. And I now have a new life, a new citizenship, a new identity because I'm connected to Jesus. Baptism is like this outward sign that's like I'm, connect- I'm with him. And that's amazing. And that's what we're talking about today, identification with Christ. So, 
I want to turn to the words of Paul, Ephesians chapter 2. If you've got a Bible, you can turn there. Um, you can keep your finger there. We're going to jump around a little bit. But uh, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, in the first few verses, Paul essentially says this. He says, look, apart from Jesus, you're lost in sin, in darkness. It's not a good situation. You're without hope. Then in verse 4, he says this. Let's all, can we say this together? You guys read this? But God. Can we try that again? But God. This is incredible. Years ago, I heard a sermon called The Big Butts of the Bible. And I never forgot it because of the title, but also because of the content, right? It's incredible. Paul's like, you were hopeless. Let's say it together. But God. You were in sin. But God. You were without a prayer. But God. You had no chance of getting to the Father. But, but God. He changed everything. And here's what he goes on to say. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. What's incredible is that when we believe in Christ and join ourselves to him by faith, everything that God said about Jesus, he actually says about us. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Man, I wanted to just tell those people in our group who were baptized, like, you are loved. God is pleased with you. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It doesn't matter what you do tomorrow. He already loves you out of that place of acceptance. Go and live out your faith. Do you understand? Okay? He's rich in mercy. And because of the great love with which he loved us, here's what he says next. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, long before we could even acknowledge him, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So what Paul is saying is because of what Jesus has done, we are no longer dead in our sins, But when we are joined to him in faith, we are actually made alive. We have a new life inside of us. And honestly, this is where most Christian teaching stops. People go, okay, that's amazing. Jesus saved me from my sin. I got a ticket to heaven someday. I guess I'll be there. And I'll just try to be a good person, you know, uh, until that time. And so that's kind of where it ends. But that is not where Paul ends. Look what he says next. And. Everybody say, and. When you add an and to a sentence, what does that mean? There's more. If you're sitting with somebody, just turn and say, there's more. If you're watching online, I don't care if you're sitting by yourself, just say, there's more, okay? There's more, okay? It's not just you're saved from your sin and now you go to heaven. Here's here's what he says next. And raised us up with him. You're like, raised him up, raised us up, raised us up. What does that mean, raised us up? Like out of the grave? No, no. He already talked about that. Raised us up with him. Here's what he says next. Seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Okay, stop. What in the world does that even mean? I've been wrestling with this one for years. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for you? If I'm in Christ, I'm not just saved from my sin. I'm not just made a citizen of heaven, but I've been raised up with him, with Jesus, and seated with him in the heavenly places. Does anybody here know where Jesus is seated seated right now? Beside God? Yes. Anybody else? You're like, I think that was the right answer. It is the right answer. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven, in heaven. That's where Jesus is right now. You guys with me? A little nod. We're just staring blankly, okay? Jesus is seated in heaven. Uh, John actually has a vision. John the Apostle had a vision of heaven. Let me, let's look at it. It's pretty cool. In John chapter 4, beginning in verse 2, here's, here's what he says. He's, he's in a trance, he's in the spirit, and he's seeing the throne room of heaven, where this throne that God sits on, where Christ is. And it says this, at once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven 
with the one seated on the throne. So he's talking about God. Imagine God sitting in his chair, like ruling and reigning over everything. That's what John is seeing right now. And he's going to try to describe in language we can understand what in the world he was looking at. So here's what he says next. Verse 3, he says, And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. For those that don't know, that's like bright red stuff. So you can imagine like royal red robes of power. There's this, this God seated on this majestic throne. It's like, oh man, it's so red. And around the throne was a rainbow, right, which is a symbol of peace and, and mercy. And you got this rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald, which is green. So picture this, shining red king seated on his throne, just like, boom, you know, glowing red with a green rainbow. That's what he's looking at. And we're like, man, that's psychedelic. It's amazing. I don't know. Verse 4. And around the throne, this is where I wanted to get to. Around the throne were 24 thrones. Maybe you never thought about this. You imagine God's throne in heaven. Red majesty of a king. Green rainbow. And then surrounding the throne, there's 24 little thrones. That's so cute. And seated on the thrones are 24 elders. And you're like, who, who, who are the 24 elders? Well, uh, theologians, they, they discuss all of this, but generally speaking, everyone agrees that the 24 elders are representatives of the saints. Not like Mother Teresa, like that kind of saint, but the saints, the people who are in Christ. They're representatives of you and me, of Old and New Testament saints. And they're there on thrones, 24 of them, around the throne of God. Next verse. And it says they're clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. So, okay, just picture this. God Almighty is sitting on his throne. Jesus is at his right hand. And then you've got all these little thrones representing us. And on them are seated the elders, and they're all wearing crowns, and they're all sitting with God on little thrones. It's like, when I said last week that Jesus was a kingmaker, I wasn't kidding. That he crowns us, and that he raises us up. That we're seated with him. And here's the most incredible thing about that. It's like, obviously, we're here on earth, but somehow Paul is saying we're also seated with him. That somehow here we're like, I'm, you know, mom, dad, plumber, teacher, dietitian, whatever we, what we think we are, we are also seated with Christ in heaven, that we have direct access to the God of eternity who created all things, who has all power, who has all everything, and we're literally seated with him full access. It's an incredible picture. I'm still trying to figure out what it means. Like, how do we, how do we live out of this incredible identity that Paul is talking about? So let's, let's return to, to Paul's statements in Ephesians chapter 2. Let's go back. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And here's why God has done this. In the next verse, Paul's going to tell us, so that in the coming ages. I want to stop on this little phrase. It is extremely important for you and I to recognize that this is not the end. This Man, when you, when you look at the fall and you're thinking about the fourth wave and what do we do with school and what about my business, like all of that, I get it. I feel the pressure. We're all in there too. But we need to be reminded sometimes when we come to church that there's a coming age. This isn't the end. That there's something better awaiting us. There's another kingdom that we're part of and this is like our temporary thing and that's our permanent thing. And he's like, so in the coming ages, what God wants to do is show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Because we are connected to Christ, God is, is looking forward to lavishing his love and mercy and grace upon us for eternity. So it's like, no matter what's going on, you're just reminded that there's hope. No matter what's going on, you're reminded there's a green rainbow somewhere just waiting, right? 
with God. It's incredible. It's incredible. He continues to say this, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is, this is so important. This is not your own doing. We don't, we don't achieve this status of being raised with Christ and, and access to God. We don't achieve any of that, okay? It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. He finishes with this in the 10th verse. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, what Paul is saying is exactly what we saw in the life of Jesus. That because of what Christ has done for us, because we are united with him, we have an identity in heaven and an identity with God that will impact eternity. And that all the good works that we do, all the achievement we do in this life is done out of our identity in God, not trying to achieve it. Does that, is this making sense? There's the story of the prodigal son. Maybe you guys have heard it. And there's two sons, right? One of them goes off to find his identity with wine and women and money. And the other one stays back and tries to earn his identity. And they're both wrong because their identity as sons was given to them. The father turns to the older son and says, everything I have is yours. Like, what are you, what are you, what are you still trying to achieve? And for us to understand who we are and whose we are and to understand that we are loved and accepted, it's only then that we can say, you know what? This crown doesn't mean that much to me. And we can crown someone else and serve someone else and love someone else because all we're doing is giving away what's already been given to us. It's a beautiful, beautiful image. A couple things I want to say before I close. Uh, first, that to understand that through faith, when we are connected to Christ, when we trust in him and we put our faith in him, we are connected to him in a way that I, I don't think we can understand. Paul would say things like this. He would say, I desire to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. Like his whole life, he was trying to figure out what all this meant. It's beautiful. And I'll tell you this. Let's say, for example, can you guys, you know, let's pretend we're in a Hallmark movie. Can you guys, can you guys go with me on that? You've all seen one? And let's just assume, you know, I'm like an ordinary small town pastor of a church and all of a sudden someone comes through the door and they're wearing a fancy suit and they're driving in a limo and they come up and they tell me that I am the long lost prince of Cordinia. All right, Cordinia, how's that? You know, it's a small European nation. It's very wealthy, but nobody's ever heard of it. You know, that kind of thing, right? And, 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 and all of a sudden I'm like, I think I'm a nobody and all of a sudden they tell me I am, I'm, I'm royalty and they put a crown on my head. Well, all of a sudden, there's all kinds of new options available to me. You, you agree with that? But here's what's really cool, is that if I'm crowned, my wife, Jessica, who happens to be married to me, right? We're one, we're unified in marriage. She becomes Princess Jessica, just by association, because she is joined to me. And that's exactly what happens for us. We talk about how Jesus is raised up in heaven and he's given the name above every name and he's like, you're attached to me, you're coming with me and he raises us up with him. And the access that he has to his father, we have. If we understood what I'm talking about today, we'd all be praying more. <laughs> Our prayers would sound different. It wouldn't be like, hey God, you know, do you think? It would be like, Father, I know you hear me and I know you love me. And I don't understand what's going on, but I trust you. And I'm asking for your guidance and I'm asking for your peace. You know, people, people ask for stuff, but what they really want is acceptance and fulfillment and joy. And all the, all the things that we really, really desire in our heart, God has already given to us. His joy is our joy. His peace is our peace. We can have the things that we desire. And I'm not talking about a boat. 
I'm talking about what we're looking for. When we buy the boat, we can have that already because we're in Christ. Does that make sense? So I want to close with one passage that's just so cool. We're talking about this idea of being a kingmaker when we are so confident in who we are that God has loved us, accepted us, crowned us, raised us up, and it's like, you know what? I'm so confident in who I am in Christ that I can encourage and love and give and support and help others win and help others become all there to be because I'm satisfied in him. Our identity allows us to be kingmakers without growing resentful, to be kingmakers without becoming tired and jealous. There's this cool verse uh, we were reading in Revelation. Let's just go to the next verse, Revelation 4, verse 10. Check this out. So you got the 24 elders sitting on their thrones around the, the great throne with God and the, you know, the green rainbow. And it says, the 24 elders fall down in worship before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. So we get this picture of what's going to happen in heaven. These people who have been lifted up by Christ into the throne room of God are going to fall down and worship the very God who loved them and gave his life for them. Next verse. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God. And they're casting their crowns because they know that they didn't earn it. It was given to them. They didn't do, and they, they give it back. This is a beautiful, beautiful image of what happens. So what I want to do today is I wanted to just encourage our church. There is a sense in which you and I can come to understand who we are in Jesus. And when we know that we are loved, accepted, when we have his peace, when we have his joy, it changes everything. And I want to encourage you to begin a journey of understanding who you are in Christ. Not to just stop at my sins are forgiven, but to say, who does God say I am? He says we're citizens of heaven. We are sons and daughters of God, kings and priests. These statements are not empty. They're full of meaning and significance that change the way we look at ourselves and the way we look at and love others. Can I pray with us? Father, thank you for the example we have in Christ. Thank you for the great love with which you've shown us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. I pray, Father, that we, as your children, would come to understand that everything we are flows out of what you've said about us and what you've done. Your love for us is the fuel that allows us to give and serve and love and go the extra mile and give uh, our time and energy and love to others because you are our source. Lord, I pray for each and every person in this place that we would be able to truly comprehend, even for just a moment, to have a glimpse of the great love with which you have for us and what that means to be connected with you. If there's anyone here today, anyone listening online who has never committed their life, their heart, their faith to you, I pray that they would do so today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everybody, that just about wraps up today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please be sure to keep up with us on all of our socials. And uh, our website is pathwaylife.com. Thanks again and have a great week.